Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We'll, uh, we'll focus our attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 1 through 3 we'll be reading. We've talked about this series, the revelation of God, the the fact that we are commissioned by God and that we are privileged to have a relationship with him. Last week we learned about the I am, the I am, who is the I am, the beginning and the end. This morning we'll focus our attention, Revelation 22, 1 through 3, the Bible says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And for just a few moments this morning, we're going to talk about he who sits on the throne. He who sits on the throne. I'm just going to lay a little bit of a foundation here for a moment and Trust me, I'm not going to stay here for very long. But the world that we live in seems more and more political. The world of politics has had a much larger platform in recent decades. Now certainly the political system in this country, and I would say the world, is nothing new. However, it does seem as if that whole dynamic has grown and has gotten a quite a bit more airtime here recently. You see, at one time, in this country at least, a person who sought a position in government was considered to be a public servant. However, something changed somewhere along the way. Some, somewhere along that journey, power became the objective the desire to serve was replaced with the desire to rule. And certainly nothing new. The fact of the matter is, is that mankind has sought to govern himself seemingly from the beginning of his existence, or at least shortly thereafter. And that has quite created quite the conundrum. Because there's always someone who thinks that they can do it better. It's unfortunate, but it's a 
cutthroat process to ascend to a position of prominence in the realm of political prestige. It would seem as if even now it has become even more incendiary, even more contentious in the world that we find ourselves in. But it's as old as time. The jockeying of position, the desire to ascend, it doesn't just exist in government. It exists in all aspects of society. Corporate America is saturated with it. It's what drove men like Adolf Hitler to madness, and it's what creates wars and espionage and rumors of wars as the overwhelming desire of man to rule the world fuels attempt after attempt to ascend a throne. And when it really is boiled all down to it into its core, not to oversimplify, but it really all comes down to this, who can be more convincing in their campaign? Who can make their opponent look as weak as possible, as bad as possible, and make themselves appear to have all the answers? But what they are after are earthly thrones, and they are at best temporary. And those that rule them at best are merely mortal. And so as we conclude our study this morning, let us consider the context of what and, and who John the Revelator is writing to in the 22nd chapter of Revelation. John wrote as a messenger of God to seven churches located throughout Asia Minor. These churches were under the rule of what is known as the Roman Empire. They were subject to its rule. And they were subject to its reign in the earth. And that rule and reign was in direct command of a throne. They understood the significance of a throne. And they understood the power that was associated with that throne. You see, the throne of Caesar could, and it did in fact assemble armies. It caused lands to be overtaken and territories to be conquered. The throne was the place of rule. It governed all aspects of life, and it had the latitude to exact what pleased the governor, the emperor, the king. Caesar's throne was unprecedented in its power. It was unprecedented in its vast, vast reach in the earth. Few would even have direct access to that throne, and few would have direct audience with the king. No one, no one would challenge that throne. After all, it was the highest seat in all of the earth, yet someone did. Someone challenged that throne, and he did it unlike any that have ever gone before him or would ever attempt to come after him. Because he sent, he ascended not a throne, but he ascended the throne. He ascended not a throne because he sits on the throne. Caesar didn't know it, but Caesar was subject to a greater throne, and Caesar was subject to a greater will of a greater king. Caesar unwittingly followed all of his commands, and the Roman Empire didn't understand it. The Roman Empire was one of those that were associated with great innovation, great 
technology. They were advancement in the earth in their time. They were they were they were unlike anything that had come before them. The, the Roman Empire is attributed with building highways and connecting lands and making throughways and providing access to places otherwise unreachable. Caesar couldn't comprehend it. His subjects maybe couldn't comprehend it, and I suspect they never will be able to. They believed that they were conquering lands for their own use, but what they were doing in effect is that they were conquering lands for a greater king and a greater kingdom. The lands that Rome ruled represented future areas of conquest for a very different type of empire, and that was the kingdom of God. The Roman Empire successfully created, created security and, and availability and the, the, the process to spread the gospel of the kingdom, and so it did. And so can I tell you this morning that just like them, we are in the same position here today. We stand in direct rule from a throne, so to speak, we stand in direct, in direct rule of, uh, 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 of a government that is in place that we must adhere to. But let me tell you something this morning. It does not matter who or what is in the White House. It doesn't matter who or what sits in every seat of the Congress. And it does not matter who occupies the governor's mansion in any state in this union. The Bible says that he removes those kings and he sets them up. And so no matter what, God is still on the throne. Do I have anybody that believes that this morning? That God is still on the throne. We read in the book of Revelation that God sits on the throne. He sits upon the throne. But he does it unlike any other. God sits upon the throne in absolute power. Yet he did so by displaying absolute humility. The Bible says that he is both the eternal God and the lamb slain from the foundations of the world for the sins of humanity. His humility caused him to subject himself to humanity. Hebrews 4 and 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And as a result, that humility, his humility created access because Hebrews 4 and 16 says, let us therefore Come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so those that worship him, they may never have access to an earthly king. Those that worship him may not never have an audience with an earthly king or an earthly governor. But we have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have access to his throne, which is a throne of grace. And here's why. He sits on the throne of heaven and earth. And he is able to do so because he conquered both heaven 
and earth. And he conquered heaven and earth because he created heaven and earth. The Bible says that he is both the beginning and the ending. He is both the alpha and the omega. And so we simply cannot, we will not, we will never be able to overstate the majesty and the significance of the throne of God. Think about that. The fact that God would step down from that throne cannot quickly be passed over as the beginning and as the ending. God represents the one who transcends all time and human comprehension, yet at the same time is the one who chose willingly to come to earth trading a glorious king's robe for swaddling clothes and the attire of a common man. This is how Isaiah saw him in Isaiah 6 and 1 in the year that King Uzziah died. This is what Isaiah said. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's how Isaiah saw him. He was high. He was lifted up and his train filled the temple. Yet he would leave eternity and step down into time and subject himself to mortality. He became a servant and he not only is the alpha and the omega because of that, he's not only the beginning and the end of eternity, but because he stepped down into time and robed himself in flesh, he became the author and the finisher. He's the alpha and he's the omega, but he stepped down into time and became the author and the finisher of our faith. He became the author and the finisher of our faith to both establish and to carry out what he intended us to do. And he did it to show and display what he intended for us to be. And he did it by and through absolute servitude. Hebrews 12 and 2 said he endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore where he sits on the right hand of God he sits there rightfully. The word translated is set down is expressed in the perfect tense. It indicates that not only did Jesus sit down at some point, not only did he sit down at some point in the past, but that he continues to remain seated. Similarly, this is stated in Psalm 110. In one, when the psalmist wrote, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy 
footstool. The phrase is at the right hand of the throne of God and sit thou at my right hand do not refer to a specific geographical location. Rather, the right hand of God or the right hand of the Lord are figures of speech referring to the power and the authority of God. I'm going to say that again. The right hand of God is not in geography. It is in absolute statement. It is the absolute power and the absolute undivisible authority of God. In conjunction with his ascension, he is exalted to a position of ultimate power and ultimate authority. Philippians 2 and 9, wherefore God also hath exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't want to get too out there on my outside of my notes because I only have a certain amount of time but there's not three sitting on the throne there's not some sort of committee that has to get together to find out what we should do but there is only one who sits on the throne and his name is Jesus there's only one that sits on the throne in fact, throughout the New Testament scriptures and in the book of Revelation, Jesus identifies himself repeatedly. He reveals himself. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it is not the first time that Jesus revealed who he is. In Revelation 21 and 6, the Alpha and the Omega says, it is done. A grand declaration reminiscent of the statement that Jesus made from the cross when he said, it is finished in John 19 and 30. In the same verse, the, same, the, the way that the I am says, I am Alpha and Omega brings to mind all the declarative proclamations that Jesus made throughout his ministry in Scripture when he said, I am, John 6 and 35, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, he said in John 8. I am the good shepherd in John 10 and 11. He said, I am the true vine in John 15 and 1. And in a heated, very contentious, very unbelieving atmosphere that he stood with Pharisees, Jesus said in John 8 and 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham ever stepped on the scene, before he ever was ever known in his mother's womb, he said, I am, I am. Jesus pointed their attention and ours both emphatically, systematically, and unapologetically placing himself at the burning bush when Moses asked that question, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, the God of your fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What 
is his name. What shall I say unto them? And God, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am sent me unto you. And so Jesus emphatically, systematically reveals himself when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the, the true water. I am the living water. I am the bread. I am the, the light. I am your everlasting need. He was saying, I am that I am. I have come to you in that name because I am he. And it was there. It was there that they really purposed to take him out. He could say whatever he wanted to say, but when he revealed himself, not like God, I'm not doing things like God, he said, I am God. How dare he speak such words? How dare he say that he is God? How dare he upset their tradition? I submit to you today it was because they did not nor did they want to understand despite the signs and despite the fact that he stood in their midst most simply they did not get it but it was not because they didn't have the ability it wasn't because they couldn't because he was giving them every opportunity to choose it was because they refused the Jews in Jesus day made that mistake of taking him and trying to place him in a lower setting. He said they mistakenly took his bold statement when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up into erroneously thinking that he was speaking of the temple where they worshipped. However, he was not speaking of that physical temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus would be crucified. His body would be physically buried in the earth. His physical temple on this earth would be destroyed. But miraculously, three days later, he would rise triumphantly from the grave and Jesus would show that ultimately he was the only temple that the Jews ever would need and he is the only temple that we need here today. He's the only temple that they need and he is the only temple that we need because in fact it did come to pass. That temple where they did worship where they did sacrifice in AD 70 it was destroyed destroyed, never ever to be rebuilt again but all hopes were not dashed all hopes were not lost because in Revelation as John begins to describe New Jerusalem as he sees it he writes of the beautiful city he writes of the glorious foundations of the walls where they're made with precious stones he writes of the gold and the, and the gates of pearl and the streets that are made of pure gold but interestingly no temple the most important part of the Jews tradition was that temple and John 
begins to pin the words as the Alpha and the Omega begin to reveal unto him and there's no temple. Revelation 21 and 22, and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You see, the writing of Revelation likely occurred after the events of AD 70. It would be plausible to assert that some Christians even joined with their Jewish brethren in hoping or thinking that the temple would be rebuilt. This was written to them. However, John revealed that the reconstruction of the physical earthly temple was not necessary because Jesus is the temple for all believers. I said it before and I'll say it again. He's all that they need and he is all that we need. There's a simple song that we sing. Jesus is all I need that's all it says because he's all I need I don't need all these other things I don't need all these other things to fill up my life because he is all that we need he is all that we need so much so sister Chelsea that in the book of Revelation John also reveals that the lamb will be the light that illuminates New Jerusalem. The Bible says that there will be no need for a sun. The Bible says that there will be no need for a moon to give their light because Jesus will be that light. Jesus even revealed this to us when he said in John 8 and 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Those Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. This is what he was saying. Jesus said, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going and I know what I came for. And, I, and if you will do what I say to do, you can go where I go because those who walk in that light, that spiritual light, that light of Jesus will one day walk in the light of the Lamb. To experience Him now, to walk according to His word now will provide the opportunity to experience the eternal light and the eternal life of Jesus Himself. To spend eternity in that light, we must have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no day, and there will be no night, and there will be no darkness. And here's a marvel thing there will be no sin, there will be no light. There will be no darkness. Jesus will be the light. And there will be no sin. I know your minds are blown. It's very simple. To walk in his light now. 
gives us the opportunity to walk in eternal light then. Anything that is not expressly from God, anything that is not of God, will have no citizenship there. There will be no lies, only truth. Think about that. There will be no abomination, only righteousness. There will be nothing defiled, only the redeemed. And anything that is contrary to God's word will not be written in that book. And so we must walk in the light of God's word in order to fulfill God's purpose and his desire. See, there's something that light does. Light sheds on darkness. Light expels darkness and light reveals 1 John 1, 5 through 9. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here we go. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, let me say that again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We cannot deceive ourselves. We have sin. We are in the earth. But if we confess our sins, if we come clean, rather, if we will confess to him, the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if we are to have fellowship with him for eternity, we must walk in the light while we're on earth. Let me hear, let me hear, let me, let me just have your attention. We must walk in the light of revelation, and I'll take it one step further. We must continue to walk in the light of revelation. We must maintain relationship with, uh, with God. In other words, walk in the light and keep walking in the light. Here's why. Because just as names are written and are entered into the book of life, names can be removed. Now that goes against the grain of a lot of teaching today. But I have Bible for that, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know about it here in just a second. Just because your name is written doesn't automatically ensure that it stays there. Names can be removed. When we repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus in water by immersion, 
and receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and the angels rejoice over our salvation and look forward to seeing us in heaven. However, salvation can it can be neglected and it can be neglected in more ways than one. If we defile ourselves, act abominably, or create lies, then we will find ourselves blotted out of the book. Salvation can be neglected in more ways than one. Paul wrote a very stern warning in the book of Galatians. Galatians 1 and 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into grace into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Here's the warning. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And he repeats himself as we said before. So say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And so we cannot afford to be defiled and we cannot afford to be deceived. I'll say that again. We cannot afford to be defiled and we certainly cannot afford to be deceived. We must with all, with everything that we have, we must overcome every attempt of the enemy to circumvent the will of God in our our lives because Jesus said he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and here it is and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels and so if it can be written in it can certainly be blotted out and I don't want to do anything in my life that would cause it to be blotted out so I've got to maintain my relationship I've got to continue to walk in the light of his light I've got to continue to do what he's called me to do and we must be overcomers to remain in the book it's then it's then as we overcome and have overcame God brings us back to an Eden like state in the New Jerusalem and we kind of come to a close where we began and he showed me a pure river of water clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him but in order for that to take place, there's just one more throne that we need to discuss. And it's really what drives everything else that we've talked about here today. 
And that is our individual thrones and who is sitting on that throne. It goes without saying that Jesus must be on that throne. And as sacrilege as this sounds, my will can prevent his ascension and my will can unseat him from that throne. It's really the oldest of its kind. It's really the oldest lie that has ever been told. The deception, the lie that says, I can do all of this on my own and I can take care of all of this in my own way. It's this type of deception that can really destroy the rightful plan of God in any life. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It really all comes down to the convincing. Who is more convincing? Satan, in effect, told Eve that the eating of the fruit would make them like gods. He told them that the partaking of the forbidden thing that God had told them not to do would essentially give them the power to know good and evil and to be like him. This is what he was saying in effect. You won't need him anymore. You won't need him anymore. It's that mentality. It's that thinking that that overwhelmed his mind in the beginning, but it's that same mentality that got him kicked out of heaven, heaven hurtling toward the earth like lightning. And the same thing happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, expelled, never able to return. And because that happens, that attempt, that, 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 that desire, the attempt to sit upon the throne of your own life will always result in failure. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. It's one of the most interesting wars for a throne occurred in the Persian Empire. Daniel 5 provides us with a vital background information for this account by telling of the Persians defeating the Babylonians and setting up a vast kingdom. Cyrus, and, Cyrus the Great ruled over the Persian Empire and his son Cambyses succeeded him. However, the next secession proved more challenging. Although historians disagree on all the details, the following account preserves the key points. When Cambyses died, Darius rose to power and defeated other contenders for the throne, killing Cyrus's son, Bardia. Despite Darius's authority, lack of knowledge caused problems for the new king because many, many people in the empire didn't know that Bar Bardia had died. As a result, a pretender to the throne named Guamata proclaimed that he was Bardia. Because Guamata looked like Bardia, the scam proved effective at first. Darius, however, killed him. A stone carving, uh, a stone carving known as the Behistun inscription features Darius's trampling of the imposter. But after the death of Guamata, another man arose claiming to be Bardia. After a short-lived success, he died. 
while Darius stamped out these con artists, many have even argued that Darius himself lacked a legitimate claim to the throne and that he invented the story of the usurper Guamata in the first place. I said all that to say this. The Persian Empire, it rose and it fell. The Roman Empire, it rose and it had its 15 minutes of fame and it too is nothing more than historical writings and the, and, and the, and the, and the, and the things of tales and legends. Kingdoms have came and kingdoms will inevitably go because there is only one eternal king. And though we cannot always determine who ascends and who descends earthly thrones, the fact remains that Jesus is the only rightful king to sit upon the throne of heaven or over any life in the earth. But even though he rules and even though he reigns supreme as God over all and for all eternity, we have the power to unseat him in our own life and we must resist the temptation to have it any other way. We alone decide whether we will accept his rule. Jesus must be the only one on the throne. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again loud and proud. Jesus must be the only one on the throne. And so you ask the question, well, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked because I have your answer this morning. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and is the finisher of our faith. I have got a marvel idea for you here this morning, but it has already proven to be successful. How about we follow his lead? How about we follow his lead? I feel like telling someone here this morning, step down, step down, relinquish die out, take upon you his yoke and take upon you his burden. I feel like telling someone here this morning, obey his word. You might not have all the understanding but obey his word. I feel like telling somebody here this morning to repent and to take his name in baptism. You might not have all the understanding. You might not have all the answers but if you'll just step out in faith and in obedience and keep his commandments and worship him as the one true God then God will work out everything else in your life you see true worship true worship removes everything else from the throne of our hearts true worship and placing him in his rightful place it removes every idol because they can't stay there with him remember I said there's only one on the throne there can be only one on the throne and so I say lay aside every weight and lay aside every sin and let's return the honor back to him so that he can rightfully rule and reign in 
our lives. Come on, let's stand together this morning and let's lift our hands to heaven and let's get let's do that in surrender to him. We surrender our will to you, oh God. We pray this morning, not our will, but your will be done. Not only in heaven, God, but let it be done in earth. Let it be done in this earth, in this earthen vessel, oh God. Let your will be done. Let your power prevail and let your word be forever settled in every heart, in every mind, in every soul. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's clap our hands to the Lord. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.